very glad to be with you here on this morning, to be here with you on the Lord's Day. I want to um, greet John and Catherine Pretlove. I saw you sneak in here today. Very good to be here with you. Yeah, um, it's very good to see you. Yeah, praise the Lord. Pastor John, uh, if you're newish to this church, he, he was serving at this church for quite a while and helped it get through some of the toughest times that it's been through. So we, we're very, very grateful for, for him and for the way that Catherine helped him uh, in his ministry. So praise the Lord that you're here and praise the Lord that you're all here. Let me ask God to help us and let's get into his word. Father, thank you so much for yet another day. Your mercies are new. They're not only new every year, they're new every morning. And so we're grateful for these new mercies. We're grateful for another day to worship you and to serve you together. And we ask you, Lord, by your spirit, that you would help us to worship you by listening to your word. And that your spirit in us would help us to not only understand it, but to treasure it in our hearts and live out according to what we have learned today. Be honored in us, O Lord this year and today in Christ. Amen. It has been a joy these last several weeks to be focusing on Christmas, to be focusing on the fact that the Messiah arrived in the incarnation and that in doing so, the Son of God was humiliated for our sake. And last week with Pastor Olo's sermon, we saw how important it is that we recognized that Christ arrived as fully God and fully man. And if he hadn't arrived as fully God and fully man, we would not be saved. Now that Christmas time has passed and we've walked into a new year, having spent these last couple of weeks focusing on the incarnation of Christ, we now happily proclaim to you this morning that because Christ has come, we are no longer slaves. Praise God that we're no longer slaves. We're going to see in this passage that before Christ, we were not children of God, but we were slaves. But because Christ came into the world, he set us free from our bondage and brought us into God's family. That's what we're going to be focusing on during this New Year's Day of 2023, which just so providentially happens to be the first Lord's Day of 2023. In Christ, we have been put into a new situation. In Christ, we've been brought into a new family, made new people, and given new life. That is a lot to celebrate on New Year's Day. So let's take some time to think anew, afresh, about this aspect of God's amazing grace toward us. Another blessing of this passage, as we look at it, is that we get to see in it how each person of the Trinity worked towards our salvation. We see what the Father did for us. We see what the Son did for us. We see what the Holy Spirit did for us. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, freed sinners like you and me. We're going to think through our freedom with five different observations from the text. Five observations. One, our former state of slavery. Two, the Father's perfect timing and loving action. Three, Christ's humiliation and mission. Four, 
the Holy Spirit's ministry, and five, our freedom and inheritance. Now, just a quick note that there are quite a few cross-references in this sermon, more than I usually do, so we're going to, what I mean by that is we're going to be quoting or alluding to many texts of Scripture as we go along today, and because of this, to save you from having writer's cramp, I just included it at the bottom of your outline. All the references are at the bottom of your outline today, so you don't have to struggle to write them down, okay? Let's delight in all of these realities together, starting with number one, our former state of slavery. Our former state of slavery. On this point, we just want to focus on this first word of verse four, but. To rightly understand our passage today, we need to understand what came before the word but. Because what follows but uh, is in contrast to what, be- what came before it, right? So let's take some time to do that. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23, we read this. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We need to understand that This beloved doctrine that we have of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, a doctrine that we love, we need to understand that this doctrine was a mystery that was waiting to be revealed. It was a mystery waiting to be revealed. We take it for granted because now we look at the Old Testament, we see it all over the place. But before the New Testament, it was somewhat shrouded. Because we live on this side of the cross, the idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, may not be very surprising to us. It would be a little bit like reading Return of the King before reading The Fellowship of the Ring. Okay? Return of the King is a third book in the trilogy, and The Fellowship of the Ring is the first book. So if you read the third book, and I'm going to spoil this for you, but it's like decades and decades old. If you read the third book, you see Gandalf alive and well. And so when you read Fellowship of the Ring, the first book, and Gandalf dies, that doesn't at all perturb you, right? Because you already know that he's alive and well in the third book. This is an illustration of what has happened now that we already know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It doesn't shock us anymore because it was the very first thing that we learned in Christianity, But before that knowledge came, read verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. As far as they knew, here's how you were the people of God. You had to be born a descendant of Abraham or become a proselyte to these people, and you had to keep the law of God. 
If you didn't keep the law, you would be cut off from the people, either by death or exile. And the problem was that people thought that they were actually doing it. We see that evidenced in some of the conversations that Jesus had during his ministry. Remember that rich young ruler in Luke 18, and he asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life? Just asking what he had to do to inherit eternal life implies that he thought that he could do something to earn it. And after Jesus listed commandments, the young man responded in Luke 18, 21, All these I have kept from my youth. The audacity. He thought that he had done what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Or in the story that Jesus told where the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18, 11 through 12, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then there's this tax collector, this hated man among the people, who asked God for mercy. And Christ says that it was that tax collector who went home justified, and the Pharisee did not. And what that implies for us in this shocking story that Jesus is telling is that the common thinking was that in order to be justified, in order to be declared right with God, you had to be like a Pharisee. In fact, Matthew 5.20, Jesus says that if you want to be justified by your works, you got to be even better than a Pharisee. Your righteousness had to exceed their righteousness. When Christ came and preached, he revealed a central part of God's master plan. Salvation is through faith. But before that, we were, verse 23 says, held captive under the law. For Gentiles, they had zero knowledge of justification by faith. That is non-Jews, people outside of Israel. For the Jews, they had the promise of the gospel, but it was in types and it was in shadows, and they didn't fully understand them, evidenced by the fact that they were looking for a very different Messiah. They were all captive under the law, Jew and Gentile. How could they be right with God under the law? Obedience to the law. That's a prison. Anyone who thinks that he actually can keep the law and be right with God doesn't even realize he's in prison. And anyone who sees that he can't keep the law feels the weight of being in that prison. Verse 24 says that the law was our guardian. This is in chapter 3 of Galatians. The law was our guardian. Other translations say things like tutor or schoolmaster. And in all of those words, the idea that Paul is giving here in a different analogy from prison is that this was a temporary measure. Guardians are temporary. Schoolmasters, tutors, are temporary. The law was to be there for us, to be over us, verse 24, until Christ came. Until Christ came. And then in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, fast forwarding, Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. So continuing this analogy of a, of a child being under a guardian or tutor, 
God's elect have always been heirs according to God's promises. But when an heir is a child, he doesn't have the inheritance yet. And while he doesn't have the inheritance, he's basically no different from a servant. But again, that's temporary. That's temporary. Verse 2 says this, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That child is not free from his guardians and managers until his father says so. That was the state of humanity before Christ came. And we can extrapolate that this was our state before we believed in Jesus Christ. Before we heard the gospel, before we believed, we were all living under the law. And the only way that we could be right with God, apart from Christ, would be perfect obedience to the law of God. And since we'd already broken the law, there's no way of getting out of prison. Let's say that starting right now, I started, it's not even possible, but let's say that starting right now, I just obeyed God's law perfectly. It doesn't do anything for the breaking of the law I did in the past. It doesn't make up for it. You didn't get that from the Bible. You got it from Home Alone 2. <laughs> that, that weird lady with the pigeons is like, don't you know a good deed outweighs a bad deed? And it's twice on Christmas? No. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. There was no way of buying our own freedom from slavery. If you, didn't, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ right now, then you're still in that state. You are held captive under the law. And since there is no way for you to keep that law, then you're in big trouble. So stay tuned for the rest of this sermon. This may be the most important thing you hear in your life. So now that we've seen our former state of slavery, let's, next, let's look next at number two. The Father's perfect timing and loving action. The Father's perfect timing and loving action. Look again at verse four. We were slaves under the law, but what follows is what God did to free us. The beauty of this passage, again, is that we get to see what each person of the Trinity did to set us free. And first, we start with the Father. Verse 4 continues, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. This points back to the analogy in verse 2, remember, where the father sets the date for when a child is no longer under the guardian. The fullness of time had come. The idea here is that the time had fully come. In Mark 1.15, Jesus proclaims this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So imagine one of those sand timers, right, where the time is up, when the last grain of sand falls to the bottom. The fullness of time. Except when it comes to this fullness of time, it's not based on gravity, it's not based on sand, it's based on the perfect will of Almighty God. God determined the perfect time. He decided before AD and BC were even concepts when it would switch from BC to AD. He foretold of this time in Isaiah 7:14, which says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That was 700 years before the fullness of time. But God knew exactly when it would be. He set the date. 
As the father sets the date for his child, he set the date. And by the way, when we look back at that era, we can see the wisdom of God in how it really was the perfect time for these things to come. One article points out these six observations in the historical context that that made this the perfect time for God to send his son. I read, quote, number one, there was great anticipation among the Jews of that time that the Messiah would come. The Roman rule over Israel made the Jews hungry for the Messiah's coming. Number two, Rome had unified much of the world under its government, giving a sense of unity to the various lands. Also, because the empire was relatively peaceful, travel was possible, allowing the early Christians to spread the gospel. Such freedom to travel would have been impossible in other eras. Three, while Rome had conquered militarily, Greece had conquered culturally. A common form of the Greek language, different from classical Greek, was the trade language and was spoken throughout the empire, making it possible to communicate the gospel to many different people groups through one common language. Pretty awesome. Number four, the fact that the many false idols had failed to give them victory over the Roman conquerors caused many to abandon the worship of those idols. At the same time, in the more cultured cities, the Greek philosophy and science of the time left others spiritually empty in the same way that the atheism of communist governments leaves a spiritual void today. Number five, the mystery religions of the time emphasized a savior God and required worshipers to offer bloody sacrifices, thus making the gospel of Christ, which involved one ultimate sacrifice, believable to them. The Greeks also believed in the immortality of the soul, but not of the body. And lastly, number six, the Roman army recruited soldiers from among the provinces, introducing these men to Roman culture and to ideas such as the gospel that had not reached those outlying provinces yet. The earliest introduction to, of the gospel to Britain was the result of the efforts of Christian soldiers stationed there, end quote. Those are really great observations uh, that really point to what we call the omnisapience of God. This is that God is all wise. That said, God didn't just merely look down the corridors of time and say, well, that's a good time. He didn't pick the best time possible. No, he orchestrated all of human history to lead up to that very point. God's timing is perfect because he is perfect. And when the fullness of time had come, when it was just the right time, we read in verse 4, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. We're image bearers of God. And because we're image bearers of God, we understand the weight of that statement to some degree. If you're a parent, how hard would it be for you to give up your child? Your only child. How difficult would it be for you to send your son off to die. This is the nature of the Father's love for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Before I was a father, 
you know, I understood the concept of parent and child love, but only in theory, right? But now that I am a dad, I have experiential knowledge of it. It's strange. If you haven't experienced it, God willing, you will one day, but take, take my word for it. It is weird how much I love Ellie. It is such a strong and unconditional love. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose her. But God sent forth his son for us. He gave his only son for us. This was God's incredible act of love at just the perfect time. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. It should be said also that the father did not send an unwilling son. This is not, as skeptics would say, cosmic child abuse. The son went willingly. Christ went willingly, which brings us to our next point. Number three, Christ's humiliation and mission. Christ's humiliation and mission. This son whom the father sent was, verses 4 and 5 tell us, second part of verse 4, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ was, verse 4 says, born of woman. And we talked a lot about this during the Christmas season, so it still doesn't hurt us to review it once more, though. Uh, The Son of God was born of woman. He took on humanity. And if you were here on Christmas Eve, then you heard from Philippians 2 that the way that Christ showed exemplary humility to the world was by taking the form of a servant. And the way that he took the form of a servant was being born in the likeness of men and being found in human flesh. And even though it's not Christmas anymore, can we just pause here? And just once again reflect on how incredible that is. God the Son didn't always have a human body. Before the incarnation, he never suffered. He never felt weakness. He never experienced temptation or sadness. He never got hungry or thirsty. He never wept. But he took all of that on. For our sake. And by the way, it's notable here in Galatians 4.4 that Paul uses the phrase born of woman. There are other ways to say that Jesus took on humanity. But here he emphasizes, emphasizes that Jesus was born of woman. And does that not hearken back to the very first gospel in Genesis 3? When God cursed the serpent for deceiving the woman, for tempting the woman, he promised that the one to crush the serpent's head would be the seed of the woman. Christ is that seed. He is the one born of woman to crush the serpent's head. And he was furthermore, verse 4 says, born under the law. Born under the law. Again, can, can we even wrap our minds around that? God chose to be born under the law for us. He joined us in our former state. He put 
the requirement of the law on himself. And here was the requirement of the law. He had to keep God's law perfectly. Do we see how humble that is? God is the lawgiver. It is those who are under him who are to keep his law. But he made it so that the son would be born under that law. And here's why Christ came born of woman and under the law. Verse 25, or I'm sorry, verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. In order to redeem us, he became like one of us. He became fully man while still being fully God and fully under the law. Now, why was that necessary for our redemption? When we talk about redemption, to redeem us in this context is talking about paying for us. It's talking about paying our ransom price. It's talking about purchasing us out of that slavery. We were slaves under the law, and Christ came to buy us out of it. And what did it cost? One man who kept the law perfectly. That's the cost. One man who kept the law perfectly. It couldn't have been any other kind of being. Speaking of the Old Testament sacrificial system, this is what Hebrews 10.4 says. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. All those animal sacrifices that were set in the Old Covenant were, were types and shadows of Christ's sacrifice, but they really couldn't atone for man's sins. And then in Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14, we read this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. The picture here is that priests in the Old Testament, they repeatedly offered sacrifices, but those sacrifices never took away sins. But when Christ sacrificed himself as our high priest, he, unlike the priests who had to stay standing because their work was never done, he sat down at the right hand of God, because his work was done. And in his sacrifice, he has perfected everybody who believes in him. He made it as if we had never sinned. This is why he was born of a woman. This is why he was born under the law. Having kept the law perfectly as a man, and then shed his blood for us, he paid the price that was necessary to free us from under the law. He paid the price that we could not afford. He wrote the check that his body could cash. He made it so that we are no longer under the requirement to perfectly obey the law of God in order to be justified. Instead, we are justified by faith. And by the way, that's how Old Testament believers were saved as well. Hebrews 9.15 says this, Therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Our Old Testament brothers and sisters, they couldn't obey the law perfectly either, even the best of them. So they too needed somebody to pay their ransom price and they believed that somebody would even if they didn't fully understand all the details that were hidden in types and shadows. Now, we need to take a quick but I think important detour here to clarify that just because we are set free from being under the law, that does not mean that we no longer have to obey the law. Okay, we need to clarify that. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith summarizes it like this, and I think they do a good job. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. End quote. So Christ, when he, when he paid our ransom price, he freed us, from being under the law. But that doesn't mean that suddenly what has been eternally right and wrong has changed. God's moral law, which is perfectly in accordance with his perfect character, has been and always will be because it's who he is. And his law defines for us what it looks like to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It defines for us what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves. There were aspects of the old covenant law that are no longer applicable because they were ceremonial in nature, like the sacrificial system. They pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system, circumcision, many festivals, the Passover, all of that, pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who fulfilled them and thus abrogated them, is the language that the confession uses. And then we also see in the, in the Old Testament a bunch of civil laws for the nation of Israel that don't directly apply to all of the kingdom of God, although we can learn a lot of moral principles from those laws. But in any case, being freed from the bondage of the law does not mean that we have no law. All it means is now we are free to worship God in obedience without having the yoke of slavery upon us. We no longer obey the law in order to be right with God, but instead, because we have been made right with him, we love to obey him. Part of the reason that we love to obey him is in the other part of the mission that Christ accomplished. He didn't just set us free from slavery and then just leave it to us to figure it out. No. He provided for us entrance into God's family. Entrance into God's family. Verse 5 says this, so that we might receive adoption as sons. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. If you are in Christ, not only are you set free from your former slavery, but now you are an adopted child in God's family. Through Christ's redemption, 
God has adopted you. And when he adopted you, by the way, you weren't that cute baby in the crib. No, you were that hardened gang member with a long rap sheet who was even stabbing at him while he was trying to get you. You were the nastiest little thing, and he adopted you anyway. And his own son paid the price to redeem you. How awesome is the love of our God. So, so far we've seen what the Father and the Son have done to rescue us from our former state. Now let's see, number four, the Holy Spirit's ministry. The Holy Spirit's ministry. Verse six says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Interestingly here, notice the order. It's not our cry that led God to adopt us. No, it's because we are sons of God that God sent us the Holy Spirit. Here's the order of things. God set out to free his people from slavery and adopt them into his family. And having selected us for adoption, he then sent the Spirit into our hearts. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 says this, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, before the beginning, long before we were even an idea in our parents' heads, God predestined us for adoption into his family, and by his spirit he called us in. Do you see? It's not because we asked to be adopted that God adopted us. It's because he chose to adopt us that we call him Father. Verse 6 says that God has sent us the Spirit. Verse 6 says, of his Son. The Spirit of his Son. That can be confusing because the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is his own person. He's the third person of the Trinity. But the Son and the Holy Spirit, though they are two different persons, they're still one God, one being. The Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, and they are so united that it can be said that the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9, is the Spirit of God. Or Philippians 1, 19, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The persons of the Godhead, though distinct, are so united that Though it is the Spirit who dwells in us, it can also be said in Romans 8.10, Christ is in you. They are so united that Jesus can say, like in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Matthew 28.20, behold, I am with you, Jesus says, to the end of the age, even though he is with them through the Holy Spirit whom he has sent. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons, yet one being, one God, such that the Holy Spirit can be called, as verse 6 says, the Spirit of his Son. But why is he so called here? Why not just call him the Holy Spirit, as he is elsewhere called? It's likely because in the same way that Jesus called the Father, Abba Father, like in Mark 14, 36, so do we by his spirit, call God, Abba, Father. 
Christ calls him Abba Father, and by the Spirit of Christ, we call him Abba Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. Aramaic was the native language that Jesus spoke. In the three places that it's used in the Bible, it's always accompanied by the Greek word for father. So it's written out in English, Abba Father. And the reason for that, why it's paired with father, Abba Father, is probably because Abba has a more affectionate connotation to it, a more intimate connotation. If you're a Christian, God is not merely our father. There are some fathers who are derelict in their duties and they're estranged from their children, but they are still technically and legally fathers. God is not merely our father, but he is our Abba. He is our Papa. Christ's relationship with his father is the most intimate and affectionate father-son relationship in the universe. And just as he called God Abba Father, so his spirit has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba Father. Not only has he given us permission to call him thus, but he's given us the will and the desire to do so. Do you know who has zero desire to call God Abba? Satan. He doesn't even have the right to, but he doesn't want to. He certainly feels no affection for God. And before we were saved, we were under Satan's influence in the world. And we didn't have any desire either to call God Abba. That wasn't from us. But because of the Holy Spirit's work in us, who cried in our hearts, Abba, Father, so now we who believe in him have a childlike affection and trust for Almighty God. Not only does the Spirit cause us to cry out to God as Father, but he also assures us that we are God's children. Romans 8, 16 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The reality is that part of the Christian's experience is that we just know. We just know. And that's not satisfying to an unbeliever when you tell them that. Don't try that in, in apologetics, okay? But it's reassuring for us. How do we know that the Bible is true? Well, there's a lot of external evidence to support it, but at the end of the day, I know the Bible is true because the Spirit of God in me affirms that it's true. How do I know that I'm a child of God? Well, because the Bible says so. But at the end of the day, I know I'm a child of God because the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I am. Again, a skeptic is just going to be even more skeptical about that. But that's not for them. It's for us. It's for the Christian. It brings us great comfort that the Spirit attests this to us. This is the Holy Spirit's work in us, Christians. If God sent his son for us and his son died on the cross for us, but his spirit did not enter our hearts, then none of us would be saved. Here's how we know this, because this, was, this is what we were like before we were saved. Psalm 51, 5, we were brought forth in iniquity. Isaiah 53, 6, we had turned to our own ways. Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts were deceitful and desperately sick beyond understanding. 
John 3, 19, we hated the light because our works were evil. John 8, 34, we were slaves to sin and practicing sin. Romans 3, verses 10 through 11, we were not righteous, not understanding, and not seeking God. Romans 8, 7, we were hostile to God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the world and the devil, doing whatever our flesh wanted to do. Ephesians 4.18, we were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of heart. And 1 Corinthians 2.14, we were unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Now, does all that sound like a person who wants to call God Abba Father? That kind of person, and that's who I was before I was saved, that's who you were before you were saved, wants nothing to do with the God of the Bible. The reason why any of us want anything to do with God, the reason why any of us are actually thrilled with the idea of worshiping him for all eternity is because he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. It's not because we were less sinful than our neighbors. It's not because we were more receptive than them. It's not because of anything in us. It's only because of the Spirit's ministry in us. Thank the Father and the Son that they sent him. Because if they hadn't, we would still be running from God today. So far, we've seen how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have brought us out of our previous state. Finally, let's consider number five, our freedom and inheritance. Our freedom and inheritance. Verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because of God's work in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all we who believe in Jesus Christ are no longer slaves. Praise be to God. Before we were redeemed, we were captives under the law. We knew that we were supposed to keep it. And either we were hopeless, knowing that we couldn't, or we had false hope, thinking that we could, or we didn't care either way. And that's imprisonment. But now we have been redeemed. Our ransom was paid, and we are no longer slaves. But more than that, we are sons. Oh, bask in that grace this morning. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's how his love was shown. He calls us sons. And not only are we called thus, but we actually are sons. That is, those who trust in Jesus Christ. John 1, 12 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you realize how awesome that is? Or may we never take for granted that he has called us children. Our being his children came at a great cost. It cost his one and only son. And that one and only son was born of a woman and lived the life that we could not live. 
And taking that perfect life, he redeemed us out of slavery by dying on the cross for sinners like us. And all we who believe in him are no longer slaves, but children. Oh, delight in his glorious grace this year and every year of the rest of your life. But wait, there's more. Verse 7 concludes, And if a son, then an heir, through God. If we are a child of God, then we are co-heirs of his inheritance. We are co-heirs with his only son. Romans 8, 17 says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What does it mean that we are fellow heirs of Christ, with Christ? To be an heir means to be someone who has been appointed to receive an inheritance. Now, in the Old Testament, the sons were heirs, especially the firstborn son. The firstborn held what they called the birthright, which meant that he was, he was, uh, that he was to get a larger portion than the other brothers. All right? Hebrews 1.6 identifies Jesus Christ as God's firstborn. He holds the birthright. And Hebrews 1.2 says that God appointed Christ as the heir of all things. Part of Christ's inheritance is us. The Father gave him, gave us to him, his church, all who would believe in him. And we are co-heirs with him. We have been given the blessing of sharing in Christ's inheritance. And incredibly, we are treated as if we are firstborn heirs. Hebrews 12, 23 says that we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Christ is the firstborn, and yet we are treated as firstborn heirs with him. In Christ, we have salvation, we have eternal life, and he will even share his throne with us. Revelation 3.21, To one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And we have the greatest inheritance of all, himself. We will have the Father forever. We will have Christ forever. We will have the Holy Spirit forever. We will be with God forever and ever. Amen. Is there anything else you want? Our inheritance does include so much more. Things like glorified and sinless bodies. A world without tears. And a restored Eden. I am even convinced that we will have ribeye steak in heaven that somehow didn't require death. And I'm even open to the idea that we will have a big, big yard where we can play football. But who cares? We will have God. This is our freedom and our inheritance planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. So, we saw our former state of slavery, and we saw how each person of the Trinity accomplished our redemption, and we saw that not only are we now freedmen, but we are also sons and heirs of God. What shall we do with these things? Here are three very quick applications. Number one, worship and obey this God. Worship and obey this God. All of this God has done to the praise of his glorious grace. He is awesome, friends. 
worship and obey him. Why would you not? This call is for believers and unbelievers alike. Christians, if you are a follower of Christ, let the reminder of these things on the first day of this year stir your heart continually to worship God with your whole life. See what love he has had for you and respond with grateful praise and obedience. Are you stuck in some besetting sin? As one therapist said, stop it! Consider the grace that God has had on you. Go and sin no more by the strength of the Spirit of Christ in you. And for you, friend, who have been ignoring or rejecting this God until now, do you not see the beauty of what he has done? Currently, you are a slave under the law. And if you don't trust in the Redeemer whom he has sent, then you will be judged for every law that you've broken, and you have broken much. But Christ died on the cross for sinners like you. Believe in him and be redeemed by him. So worship and obey this God. Secondly, suffer well. Suffer well. Christians, you are facing all kinds of suffering right now. I know that. And you're going to have even more suffering in your life. I know that too. But the very thing that can eclipse your suffering is remembering all of what God has done for you. The Father sent forth His Son. The Son was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem you and bring you signed adoption papers. The Spirit woke you up to believe these things so that you would be saved. What kind of suffering would not be eclipsed by these incredible gifts? Your suffering is temporary. God's love for you is eternal. So worship and obey this God, suffer well, and then third and lastly, tell others about this salvation. Are you amazed by what we just went over? Don't keep it to yourself then. One of the reasons that you've been redeemed is so that you also could be a herald of the gospel. Tell others of this redemption. Tell others of this adoption and what God did to accomplish it for sinners. For you are no longer slaves, but sons. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for reminding us of these things, or for some of us even teaching us these things for the very first time. Oh, our hearts sing about your grace and your mercy. And we ask, O oh Lord, that having reviewed what you have done for us, that it would increase our affection and praise for you at all times. And in this world where we do experience trouble, help us to remember that your Son has overcome the world. Help us to remember the glories of what you have shown us today from your word. And help us, O oh Lord, to let this overflow from our hearts, that our mouths could not be stopped from speaking about this gospel speaking about this Savior. Do it, O Lord, so that your name might be praised to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.